Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca. Introducing Your Cancer, a program to spotlight the cancer community and recognize those at the forefront of cancer care. Learn more at yourcancer.org. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar, Stephen Gore, and Peter Schwartz. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about the role of the National Cancer Institute with your host, Dr. Stephen Gore, who is leaving Yale to join the NCI. Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology at the Yale School of Medicine and director of hematologic malignancies at the Yale Cancer Center. Dr. Schwartz is the John Slade Eli Professor of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at Yale, where he is also the vice chair of gynecology. You'll be leaving Yale shortly for a position at NCI. Can yeah. you tell us what exactly the NCI is and what is their focus? I'm well, glad to, Peter. First of all, I, I would like to just thank all the listeners in our listening audience for, uh, for um, you know, wonderful feedback in the past six years. I've had a wonderful opportunity here to learn so much, really, uh, about cancer in areas that that I'm not aware of, and um, and I've just gotten wonderful feedback from the community. So I'm going to miss my Yale Cancer Answers audience. Um, but uh, that said, uh, NCI is the National Cancer Institute, and of course, it is uh, one of the uh, national institutes of health, uh, which are based in Bethesda, Maryland, and, and federally funded. The NIH is responsible for uh, the a great majority, I think it's a majority of uh, biomedical research in the United States, although that may be changing with all the amount of money that pharma spends. And the National Institutes of Health has both uh, what are called intramural programs. These are scientists who do research on the Bethesda campus, or there's other campuses too. For example, the uh, National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences is in uh, the Research Triangle in North Carolina. National Institute of Aging is in Baltimore. So, but but generally, uh, the intramural scientists are paid by the government to do research uh, within the uh, National Institutes of Health, and then, but the majority uh, of uh, work in federally funded research is considered extramural, and that's the kind of work that's done at Yale and other academic centers uh, across the country and indeed internationally um, that is funded by uh, the government through the National Institutes of Health. And uh, not all of the cancer work, but a lot of the cancer work, probably most of the cancer work, of course, is uh, done through the National Cancer Institute where I'll be moving to. Mm -hmm. And what exactly is their focus? Well, I... Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of uh, there's a lot. Uh, of course, the NCI is probably one of the biggest of the institutes. So there's uh, a broad focus on the uh, many areas of uh, cancer, including detection, prevention, treatment. Uh, I'm going to be joining uh, a division uh, which has to do with cancer therapeutics. Like many things in the government, everything has acronyms. There, mm -hmm. uh, I can't remember the acronyms. <laughs> so it's really a problem when I'm trying to email people uh, about getting myself set up. Um, but uh, there is a general uh, branch uh, of the National Cancer Institute uh, devoted to cancer therapeutics. 
And uh, within that branch, a branch may not be the right word, um, is a unit, if you will, called the Cancer Therapy Evaluation Program, or CTEP. And CTEP has two sections. Uh, the one whose acronym I can never remember, which I won't be joining right away at least, uh, focuses on um, particular sets of diseases and in sponsoring what are called the national cooperative groups. The cooperative groups, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, are mechanisms by which uh, a variety of mostly academically based but also some community-based practices band together to do larger studies and some of the most important uh, studies that people become aware of in the press, you know, comparing, you know, standard A versus experimental B uh, and establishing what's best, those come through the cooperative groups and Yale participates in, uh, in many of the cooperative groups because Yale has a, a particular grant called a uh, LAPS grant, which is Lead Academic Participating Center or something like that, which enables Yale to do research uh, throughout the cooperative groups. The other uh, half of uh, the Cancer Therapy Evaluation Program, or CTEP, is called the Investigational Drug Branch, and that's where I'm going to be located. So CTEP um, is basically a liaison organization uh, which accepts bids uh, or applications from pharma companies to establish a particular kind of contract with them called a CRADA. I don't know what that stands for, C-R-A-D-A. So let's say that, um, well, one of the big new drugs in leukemia and lymphoma is venetoclax, which uh, is co-developed by um, the AbbVie Corporation and I think Genentech, which is part of Roche. And those are pretty big pharma companies, of course, and they've got gazillion dollars, but they have limited bandwidth nonetheless, and they recognize that this drug potentially has great roles to play in many things that they don't have the wherewithal to study all in-house. And of course, uh, not to offend anybody in pharma, but the pharma companies uh, have fiduciary responsibilities to their shareholders, right? So the way they make money is by selling drug. And, well, it's, it's just true, right? Uh, that's okay. That's capitalism. That's the system in which we live. Um, and so their bottom line is about, you know, kind of what's the minimum uh, trial that's going to be approved by the Food and Drug Administration mm -hmm. or by the European uh, regulators. So not always the most interesting, not always necessarily what you or I might consider the most important scientifically, but their job is to get the drug approved. And they go through, you know, there's a lot of strategies, right? Uh, and, and they recognize the limitations of that. So they will then um, compete to... Uh, to have a CRADA with the National Cancer Institute through CTEP. And once the CRADA is established, then there are medical officers, of whom I will be one, um, who carry portfolios of these CRADA-covered drugs. And they're usually around themes. I'm going to be working uh, probably in DNA damage and repair uh, associated drugs. And... Um, 
And so once the drug is, uh, it is under CRADA in CTEP, then there's a variety of things which may happen. So the medical officer may um, uh, send out a request to various centers that participate mm-hmm. in early stage tri- trials sponsored by CTEP, um, describing the drug, if it's not something people know a lot about, what the potential mechanisms are, what uh, the NCI and the company think might be interesting targets, and actually solicit proposals. Mm-hmm. Um, or an investigator like myself, until next week. <laughs> By the way, uh, this is going to be broadcast probably in July or something. So uh, this, we're actually talking in early March. Uh, so uh, so I might have an idea. Gee, it would be so interesting to study, you know, this drug plus that drug. Um, and I might uh, submit an, un, an unsolic- uh, unsolicited letter of intent. So – then the uh, group at CTEP, a uh, larger group, which includes a variety of oncologists and hematologists, statisticians, uh, meet together to evaluate the proposals in a competitive way. Um, and uh, sometimes they get in uh, outside uh, consultants on the telephone, uh, experts in a particular disease area. And decide, yeah, this is a great idea, or well, it's a good idea, but we don't really have the bandwidth for that, or, or mm, nice try, but we're not so interested in that. And uh, then, once it's approved, uh, the officer at CTEP uh, helps the academic center or centers uh, develop <clears throat> the clinical trial, and actually serves as the sponsor. For the clinical trial, so rather than AbbVie being the sponsor, AbbVie has relinquished its control uh, to CTEP, and CTEP becomes a sponsor in all the dealings with the Food and Drug Administration, all the dealings with the uh, centers that are participating. Um, so that's the role I'm going to play, and uh, and I'm very excited about it. Fantastic. Well, you're mentioning big pharma, big institutions, NCI, which is obviously a major institution. Uh, Why is all this cancer research so important? (laughs) Well, you know, uh, despite all the good news that we are hearing more and more about, you know, big changes in cancer therapy, and of course the last 10 years a lot of that has been around these wonderful drugs that turn on our immune system and enable our immune systems to recognize cancers, highly effective in certain subsets of certain cancers, totally ineffective, unfortunately, in many others. Uh, so despite all these great, <clears throat> these great uh, strides, you know, unfortunately, too many patients with advanced cancer are still facing a, a tough road with our existing drugs. So uh, there's, there's no question uh, that ongoing major investments in cancer at every level, both you know, from the very earliest drug discovery and mechanism discovery and cancer biology uh, to early phase drug development and to these ultimate uh, randomized trials that establish standards of care uh, are vitally important if we're going to continue to improve outcomes in cure rates of patients with cancer. And I've been, um, you know, one of the reasons I um, 
I, I should tell the audience the, the the actual reason that I'm moving is a is a real personal reason that we have a almost one year old grandson in Baltimore. We moved here from Baltimore five years ago, six years ago, um, and uh, you know things change when you've got grandkids. Absolutely, <laughs> and uh, we were very blessed uh, when my youngest was born. Uh, she's now mm, twenty five, or she will be. And uh, when she was born, uh, my in-laws, who had lived in Upper Westchester, New York, uh, moved down to Baltimore. And what a blessing for our family to have them nearby for the rest of our kids' childhood. I mean, there's, there's just nothing like it. And my wife – and, you know, Peter, I'm sorry to not be sexist, but, but women are just a little more emotionally intelligent about these <laughs> things, I think, at least on average. Uh, at least that's true in my family. And my wife just said, you know, I, I want to be able to give that back to our kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, how are we going to do that? So, um, well, you know, it's been such a privilege for me to be here at Yale, and I work with wonderful people, and we do wonderful things. So that was a, you know, kind of a big thing to think about. Um, but then, you know, because I'd been a customer, really, of CTEP all my career, doing early phase trials with them since, oh, 1994 was my first one, really. Um, and I found them such great partners. And, of course, I know the people there very well. And they're so helpful. I mean, they're so smart and helpful. And I thought, well, and I looked at a job there 12 years ago, actually. So I, I knew the lay of the lamp pretty well. And I said to my wife, you know, um, if I can nab a job at CTAP, I was actually kind of interested in looking at the Food and Drug Administration as well. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I'm 62, so I'm looking at kind of a pre-retirement thing. Uh, you know, if I could – land a, drug, a job there, uh, you know, it would be a privilege to give back because they've given so much to me and my research and my patients. So that that's kind of what happened. And it, it does feel like a great privilege. You know, I one of the joys that I have in my job here at Yale is that I work with a lot of junior and mid-level faculty and uh, and I help them. You know, when I, when I came up here, I, I really felt like this was my time to back burner my own research and 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 be the dad, you know, a little bit, <laughs> or the uncle, I'd say, or be the mentor. And uh, and now I get to do that on a more national level. So it's, it's really a natural outgrowth for me. Fantastic. Well, can you, uh, in a few minutes or two remaining, tell us some about the recent advances that have been made in your field? Well, we've got a lot to talk about, Peter. So I'm wondering if we shouldn't, like, hold that till after the medical minute. That would be terrific. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, proud supporter of the many individuals and organizations who are working together to end cancer as a cause of death. Learn more about the Your Cancer movement at yourcancer.org. This is a medical minute about survivorship. Completing treatment for cancer is a very exciting milestone, but cancer and its treatment can be a life-changing experience. For cancer survivors, the return to normal activities and relationships can be difficult, and some survivors face long-term side effects resulting from their treatment, including heart problems, osteoporosis, fertility issues, and an increased risk of second cancers. Resources are available to help keep cancer survivors well and focused on healthy living. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Peter Schwartz, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Stephen Gore, and we are discussing 
uh, his move to the National Cancer Institute. And we were just going to start to talk about recent advances that have been made in Dr. Gore's field of cancer research. Yeah, thanks, Peter. Uh, It's been, uh, you know, I'm really just going to think about the last six years or so. Um, It's easy for me to to parse it that way because I can think, okay, what was happening when I left Johns Hopkins? What was happening when I got here? And in truth, you know, um, again, as I mentioned, the the immunomodulators and the uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors were just, they weren't on the market yet, actually. It's hard to believe. So, uh, and, uh, you know, at Johns Hopkins, I didn't have so much contact with the solid, tumor people, although it was all one group. But somehow I was just not tuned into that. So that was pretty cool for me to come up here, uh, which was a center, uh, really, for the early work uh, that was done in uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors uh, by Mario Jnoll and Scott uh, Gettinger and, and so many others. Um, and, and, that, and I do think that that's been a, a huge change. Now, we've Try to apply some of those lessons learned in uh, in leukemias, um, and uh, so far, nothing has really bitten. At least, no home runs. Although in certain lymphomas, these drugs are very active. Nonetheless, I think uh, we are optimistic that we just haven't uh, found the right nuts to crack. We know that the immune system is very important. Uh, for cures of many leukemias and lymphomas because stem cell transplants using stem cells donated from a matched person, be it a a sibling uh, or a donor found from the registry, or now even 50% mismatched relatives, which would include your parents or your children, uh, are highly effective at uh, curing uh, some very refractory cancers in blood cancers. And that's in large part because of the immune effect of having somebody else's immune cells getting mad at your cancer cells when your cancer cells kind of grew up inside your body and your immune cells are pretty happy to just kind of wave at them. So, uh, so I, I do think that uh, I do think that that's going to be a, uh, a growing area. Now, um, there had been no new drugs in the leukemia that I one of the leukemias that I study most, which is acute myeloid leukemia, since 2000. And prior to that, around 1990. But in the past several years, we've had at least five different approvals. Now, they're not all earth-shattering approvals, but they're all major incremental (laughs) progress. And and some of them are are really very cool. So... um, so we have drugs that now target three different particular mutations that are found in some kinds of AML and in uh, a more chronic version of AML that we call myelodysplastic syndrome or MDS. And uh, these target genes, uh, one of them happens to be called FLIT3. The FLIT3 mutated leukemias uh, are often very, very terrible because patients can present with very, very high, dangerously high white blood cell counts that can clog up the brain and clog up the lungs and uh, infiltrate into all sorts of organs. And so patients are often rather acutely ill uh, when they have that. And even when we are successful in getting people into remission without killing them, which is no small feat, uh, 
especially in older patients. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, that FLT3 mutation really drives those cells, and they've just been a bear to cure. And um, But uh, there are now uh, two approved drugs, mm -hmm. two newer approved drugs uh, that particularly turn off uh, that active uh, mutated FLT3 gene. By themselves, you know, they knock the counts down. They can get something that's kind of like a remission, but it's in that the leukemia isn't bothering the patient, but rarely have the counts come back to normal, so it's not a full remission. Mm -hmm. But I'll tell you, when you when you combine those drugs with chemotherapy, it's it's making a big difference. Um, and we're still learning how to use that, so oftentimes. Patients may get uh, a FLT3 inhibitor along with chemotherapy and they get into remission and they get a stem cell transplant and then they get maintenance therapy. It's, it's a long road. It's not easy. But so many more of those patients are being cured, patients who you know, routinely were admitted to the ICU and, and often died. So that's very exciting. And then there are mutations in uh, enzymes uh, called IDH. Uh, there's an IDH1 and an IDH2. And they happen to be biologically pretty interesting um, proteins. Uh, they're also sometimes mutated in brain cancer, for example. Uh, glioblastoma, the worst brain cancer, often has IDH1 mutations. Well, not surprisingly, um, there have been inhibitors and continue to be inhibitors produced against uh, these particular mutations. And it's, it's kind of... Uh, fascinating. And even though some of these drugs are approved, I don't think we really know how to use them yet. Mm -hmm. uh, you give these oral drugs, they're given as pills or capsules. I'm not sure how they're formulated. And uh, the white count goes up, which is not necessarily what you want. And, um, and the cells, you know, leukemia cells tend to be very primitive and, and they just don't, they're kind of stupid. They don't know how to grow up into more mature cells. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, over time, and yeah, and you have to kind of watch it and keep things you know, under control, uh, the cells start to mature uh, into more normal cells, and that leads to remission. Now, how best to manage that whole process uh, is challenging. And, uh, you know, the, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, has been, I think, very responsive to the public and Congress in uh, trying to approve things faster than they used to, yeah. uh, which is a, probably a good thing in cancer. But the downside, I don't know if it's true in, in, true in your area or not, the downside is you end up with these drugs that you've got and there's not a lot of guidance. So uh, the first time I treated with uh, somebody with one of these inhibitors and their white count's going up, 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 and I... You know, I'm, I'm feeling pretty uncomfortable, but is this this good differentiation thing, maturation thing, or is it just the leukemia is just like bad guy? And I called some of the, you know, guys who had really uh, been running some of the early trials, and, and they didn't have any guidance for me. There's no, I, I don't know how to do that. What to do about that either? So, so that's very challenging, but it's uh, it's certainly making a difference. And as we learn, as we learn more about. Um, how to use them, I think that's going to make a difference. Now, those two kinds of leukemias, that's, you know, maybe, well, the FLT3 is actually mutated in about almost 30%. So we're, now we're talking about 30, 35% of leukemia. So that's still a ways to go. Now, I had mentioned that uh, we can now use half-matched donors um, for stem cell transplants. 
And so every sibling that a patient has, uh, that any of us has, has a 25% chance of being a full match, a 25% chance of being not a match, and a 50% chance of being a half match. So if you've got a sibling, there's a 75% chance that she is going to be either a full or half match. And if you've got a few of them, you're guaranteed to have half matches. And if you have healthy living uh, parents, they're half matches. And if you have children, uh, they're likely to be half matches and some cousins may be. So that's – and that's that kind of work uh, that – facilitated that kind of stem cell transplant, which was really unheard of not so long ago, uh, was done at Johns Hopkins, started at Johns Hopkins when I was there, and I sort of grew up with that. Well, at our most recent uh, American Society of Hematology meetings in September, uh, a randomized trial was done in uh, the Benelux countries, Belgium and Netherlands, and maybe some other European countries. And it was actually kind of fascinating because the lead scientist who presented the work, uh, she looked like Queen Elizabeth. She was wearing one of these <laughs> things with a big ruffled, uh, you know, ruffled, um, I don't even know what you call that thing that Queen Elizabeth yeah. used to have. I'm talking about Queen Elizabeth I. Yes. You know? <laughs> it, was quite, it was quite a look. Um, and they did a randomized study in those countries comparing transplantation with uh, – I think it might have been matched unrelated donors, or maybe it was any matched donors versus the half matched. Mm-hmm. And if they looked at the uh, successful outcome being measured by being alive, being in remission, and not having the cells which have been giving, given to you attacking you, which is kind of the biggest downside of right. stem cell transplant, we call that graft versus host disease. Mm-hmm. If you look at that combined outcome, the half matched uh, transplants we're actually better than the matched. So this is going to revolutionize uh, stem cell transplantation and make it available to, to so many more people. Uh, so that's very exciting. And of course, back to the immune system, one of the biggest uh, new things has been these CAR T cells. Uh, and, um, and we've had some shows about that. But in the CAR T cell, the, the patient... And patients' uh, white blood cells are removed from the blood uh, on what's called a phoresis machine where we take blood out of one arm and get spun around and put back in the other arm. Same way donors uh, give platelets for transfusion. And their T cells, which are the cancer-fighting cells, are then engineered to target uh, a certain protein or part of a cell like a smart bomb. Uh, so they're the patient's own T cells, but they now have a smart bomb radar, if you will. It's not mm-hmm. the bomb. It's the radar. They've got smart radar yeah, <laughs> because they have all the things they do. Our T cells have all the equipment they need to kill cancer cells. They just need to recognize the cancer cells mm-hmm. as something bad. And then these, uh, these uh, CAR-T are infused into patients, and when successful, uh, they multiply and they go around attacking cancer, and uh, certainly for pediatric, uh, certain pediatric cancers, leukemias, uh, which have relapsed, uh, no doubt many kids are being cured. Uh, many resistant lymphomas are being cured. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's great activity in multiple myeloma, although we don't know if it's curative. 
and there are clinical trials in solid tumors like breast cancer and and uh, gastric cancer. And uh, for me, it's been quite a privilege, uh, although that's not my area. Um, but in my role at Yale, I was uh, able to be part of building the infrastructure to enable Yale to be a center that can deliver these kinds of therapies. Oh. And, you know, so much fun uh, for me uh, was to watch the university and the hospital spend resources together. And, uh, you know, I, I, I tend to be a little bit of a cowboy. Uh, you know, that's kind of the – that's a little bit the uh, the ethos down at Johns Hopkins. Ah, we know how to do stem cell transplant. We can just do this CAR-T. It should be no problem. Yeah. Well, Yale is a much more cautious place and, and mostly in good ways. So uh, – and, of course, you know, nursing tends to be very uh, – I think a little mm-hmm. more conservative, not in a bad way, probably in a good way again. Uh, you know, nursing I think is – well, I don't want to say anything sexist again, but I mean it comes from a female-run uh, ethos over the years, and uh, I think on average, it's it, uh, the nursing is uh, you know ethos is is keeping patients safe, yeah. uh, whereas doctors are a little more oriented around curing, right? I mean that's yeah. just yeah. in broad strokes, right? Uh, so we worked together as a team, and um, I have to say, you know, I was kind of chomping at the bit because it took us a year to actually start treating patients. It was longer than I thought. Uh, but unlike some of our peer institutions, uh, all of which okay. lost patients, um, we didn't have a single death. Okay. So uh, it's been exciting to be yeah, part of you've that. You've done some fantastic things here at Yale, and I know I uh, – <laughs> Hearing about the CAR T cells and all the work that you had to do, along with the nursing and other physicians, as the whole the whole institution, Steve, uh, cancer clinical trials. How do the patient? What are they? How do patients get involved with it? Uh, well, you know, there's there's a variety of ways. Uh, you know, I think anybody, whether they're in an academic center or not, should feel free to ask their oncologists to uh, look into whether there's any trials for them. They can do their own research on clinicaltrials.gov, which is a pretty user-friendly interface. Uh, you often have to travel to a participating center, but many, many community oncologists do participate in very important clinical trials. So, and, you know, all of our dis- various diseases have their, um, you know, um, Support groups or voluntary organizations, Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. I'm sure there's, yep. there's probably agencies that help uh, patients with gynae cancer. Uh, so really use your places that have patient ed materials. They always have patient educators who can direct uh, direct you in the direction of the clinical trial. But start with your doctor because if your doctor isn't willing to even look for clinical trial for you or show you how to do it, then you got to kind of wonder, is that the doctor for you if, if you really want all your choices? Dr. Stephen Gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology at the Yale School of Medicine and director of hematologic malignancies at the Yale Cancer Center. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.